listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Gerita. Today's guest is Eliza Vorenberg, Director of Pro Bono Community Partnerships at Roger Williams Law in Bristol, Rhode Island. We discussed her career, access to justice in Rhode Island, the law school's pro bono collaborative partnership, and more. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Liza, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So we're just going to jump right into things. Uh, could you tell us about your background and why you became a lawyer? Sure. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I went to college in Pennsylvania at Bryn Mawr College, spent a year at Barnard and Columbia in order to study women's history. Then I took about four plus years off before I went to Columbia Law School for my law degree. Well, I resisted the law for some time, in part because there's a lot of it in my family, and I worried that I was going into it for the wrong reasons. But ultimately, in that period of time between college and law school, I ended up working at Greater Boston Legal Services, uh, where I was a housing and benefits advocate and started a homeless unit there and decided that law was, in fact, what I wanted to do and felt like I needed the degree to do it to the extent that I really wanted to do it. Great. So can you tell us about your career path and how you got to Roger Williams Law? Sure. My career path has been almost exclusively devoted to public interest law with an emphasis on serving low-income communities. After law school, I did a fellowship in Los Angeles where I never thought I would ever live, but I ended up there. Well, actually, after my clerkship, I went out there for a public interest uh, law fellowship at the Center for Law and the Public Interest. And I did that for two years, and then I worked in South Central Los Angeles for the Harriet Buhai uh, Center where I did um, some child support Uh, legislative advocacy, policy work, and also did work with pro se litigants through a, at the time, very innovative pro se clinic model uh, for divorce and child support and things like that. Um, So I did that for a bit, and then um, I had the opportunity to do plaintiff-side employment work, civil rights work, um, work on behalf of the ACLU and get some trial experience at a tiny little boutique plaintiff-side employment firm, uh, which I loved, and I did that for several years. Still in Los Angeles, had kids, sort of decided to take a break from the 70-hour you know, grind of being in a firm doing litigation and went to UCLA to do some mediation work. Um, and ultimately to be the uh, special assistant to the chancellor, assistant chancellor for academic affairs, where I was the person who developed the policy on sexual harassment as it related to faculty um, and um, did training on that. And I also uh, investigated complaints of sexual harassment and many other kinds of discrimination against uh, faculty. Soon after that, I moved to uh, Providence, not for any professional reason, but just because it felt like time to move back to the East Coast after 9-11 and um, losing my father. And I 
got my children settled here for a few years, and then this fabulous opportunity at Roger Williams University School of Law starting a brand new program called the Pro Bono Collaborative came up, and uh, I applied for it. It was part-time at the time, and I got it. And so since then, I've been here at Roger Williams School of Law, and starting out in 2006, kind of developed, I didn't develop the idea for the Pro Bono Collaborative, but I was hired to direct and launch it, and ultimately the Pro Bono Collaborative grew, and I took on additional hours, and at some point went full-time, and I now do not just directing of the Pro Bono Collaborative, but I also am the Director of Community Partnerships, and I teach uh, the seminar connected to the New York Pro Bono Scholars Program, and then I have a variety of other um, miscellaneous responsibilities. That's amazing, and I get the appeal to go back to the East Coast because I am from Providence myself. Oh, you are? Yes, I am. I grew up near Providence College. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's well, a. We'll have to share. Uh, we'll have to share. You know, favorite places and uh, favorite restaurants and things like that. Yeah, it's definitely. Do you get back a... here much? Uh, I was just there, actually. So it's a small world in a small state, pretty much. Yeah. It is a small state. (laughs) That's true. And it's a small world, too. So you mentioned you're also the director of Pro Bono Community Partnerships. So how do Mm -hmm. you spend your time, and how do you wish you could spend your time? So I spend my time connecting with community organizations and issues that affect low-income communities and helping the law school navigate whether the issues that come up once I've identified them as legal issues, whether they are issues that the law school could help address either through our pro bono graduation requirement, through a pro bono collaborative project, through an externship uh, or an internship opportunity. Um, that's my role in as director of community partnerships and then also when community organizations come to us looking for help, I, my role is to be responsive to, to that. So I do a lot of that and, and because of that and also my connection to the legal community, I now have a presence in Providence in addition to my presence in Bristol. But in sort of in my whole job, uh, the way I spend my time is very varied um, on a day-to-day basis. I spend time actually alongside students and pro bono lawyers as they are involved in pro bono collaborative projects. Um, For instance, in the spring, every other week, one of our pro bono collaborative projects uh, involves going out to the medium security facility at the ACI and providing civil legal advice and counsel to inmates there. And so, I and or my colleague go out every other week with this group of students and with the supervising attorneys who are there on a pro bono basis and, you know, really facilitate and use my lawyer hat in that environment. Um, Other times I am just, um, you know, reminding attorneys that they're doing pro bono and that they're, you know, what the timeline is and making sure that they stay on task or doing the same for law students, where sometimes I'm working with my colleague, Susie Harrington Steppen, to train students to prepare them for pro bono collaborative projects or identify experts in our community who are willing to train uh, attorneys on a particular issue for a pro bono project. 
I am involved in the Alternative Spring Break Project and identifying opportunities through my work as Director of Community Partnerships, but also just as kind of an added task of potential projects around the country called the New York Pro Bono Scholars Program. A heavy time commitment in the spring, but throughout the year connected with the students that are doing that program and developing a curriculum for the particular group that I have coming up in the spring. So bottom line is each of those things, you know, if I drill down, they have a lot of activities and things that um, that I'm involved in, um, but it is very interesting and varied and, um, and all with an eye toward helping out in the community, increasing access to justice, helping law students understand the importance of access to justice, the importance of pro bono legal service, that it's a, um, a privilege to have a law degree and uh, it's a professional responsibility to do pro bono um, and to try to develop uh, the culture of pro bono in the legal community as well. That's my overall mission. Definitely great. It sounds like you wear uh, many hats in what you do. And we're going to get deeper into some of these uh, programs and projects you mentioned later. But what motivates and inspires you? I would say helping people and sort of experiencing kind of um, the power and privilege of being a lawyer and um, and having this role um, that helps leverage that. Um, that experience to provide as much help as possible in the community. Um, being able to be responsive to legal need in the community is something that really motivates me, and, and that's something that I feel the Pro Bono Collaborative is especially um, good at, um, just being able to jump right in and, um, because of our connections to the community and to other organizations in the state and to pro bono attorneys to really um, get boots on the ground quickly. I find that really inspiring. It's definitely an inspiring attitude to have, and a lot <laughs> of us would definitely enjoy having that. Uh, so from Bristol, Rhode Island, Bristol, Rhode Island to Providence, Rhode Island, that's a pretty big space for a Rhode Islander. It's different ends of the state. So within all yeah. of Rhode Island... Uh, and only you would know that. <laughs> <laughs> so within the whole tiny state of Rhode Island, could you tell us about the pro bono and access to justice culture? I would say like many smaller states in the country, we are always working hard to try to build a culture of pro bono here. And there's certainly one that exists, um, but because, um, well, it, it exists and it's growing, um, but because we are not a major city, and we don't have any of the big, big firm uh, headquarters here. We also don't have any pro bono counsel in our city the way a Chicago does or a Boston does or a Los Angeles or New York do. Um, so we're working with kind of a different landscape than uh, pro bono organizations in other big um, cities. Um, so this means that our resources are pretty lean um, we have um, really, we only have one legal services corporation organization in the state. That's Rhode Island Legal Services. Um, and they work very, very hard on a very um, tiny, you know, budget. 
uh, one that seems to be getting smaller all the time. Um, and then we have a volunteer lawyers program, which is part of our bar association. Uh, and just recently, uh, the Rhode Island Center for Justice uh, was established, and they're a, a small legal services organization that's not LSB funded, um, but they're doing good work through community-based organizations as well. But that just to say that we're working with smaller firms and, um, you know, just a, a, a different kind of landscape um, than your typical big state landscape. Um, and I would say that since the pro bono collaborative has come on the scene um, about 12 years ago, you know, we've offered a, a an alternative avenue for attorneys to do pro bono legal service. Um, it's an avenue that involves connecting with community-based organizations and connecting with law students and doing pro bono on a team basis. Um, and I think that that has certainly influenced and increased the culture here in the state. The legal community here changed a lot after uh, the recession in 2008. You know, we had a firm in, in Rhode Island that had about 150 attorneys, and now our largest firm here has about 50 attorneys. That's a huge change. Um, and the Pro Bono Collaborative was originally intended to work with the really bigger firms to get them engaged as firms um, and get their attorneys working as part of a firm, not so much as individual attorneys the way our volunteer lawyers program works where they do individual referrals and cases. So that change as a result of the recession did mean a little bit of a shift for our approach and a little bit of a shift in the pro bono culture here. Um, another change that happened was just law firms had a lot of associates that had free time for a period of time and then when they downsized it got really tight again and so while I while I would like to say that I've seen the pro bono culture slowly increase over the last 12 years, I think um, what you really see is an increase and then a little bit of a dip and then an increase again. And I think now um, we're seeing uh, a really heightened interest and um, in, in doing pro bono and helping out. Great. That is really Can interesting. Your question? Yes, that <laughs> is super day. interesting as a Rhode Islander, like I said, I didn't actually know a lot of that, so um, it was very interesting to learn. So this is a mm -hmm. good time to start talking about the Pro Bono Collaborative, which you mentioned before. Yep. So our listeners who don't know, the PBC is made of a three-way partnership between law firms, law schools, and community-based organizations. Could you go into a little more about what it is and how the partnership got started? Sure. It all started actually around 2004. Um, with a racial justice colloquium here at Rhode Island Foundation that identified um, through a many community-based organization a desperate need for legal assistance, um, you know, i.e. pro bono legal assistance, that there just wasn't um, enough out there. And the law school wanted to do something about that. And the law school got a mini-grant from the Rhode Island Foundation to do a survey of attorneys in the state and the results of that survey really informed the creation of the Pro Bono Collaborative at Roger Williams School of Law. 
And what it showed was, for instance, that uh, individual attorneys generally were doing more per attorney pro bono service than big firm attorneys at the time. It showed us sort of the demographics of who was doing pro, pro bono and, and who was, wasn't was doing pro bono, um, what kinds of work attorneys were interested in doing and felt comfortable doing, what kinds of work they didn't feel comfortable doing. And all of that went into our thinking in putting together this model. Um, and that model was loosely based on a model in Chicago that has the same acronym, PBI, um, and then P-I-L-I, um, and that involves a partnership with organizations and law school and, um, well, it, it wasn't, it didn't originate in law school, but it, which is why it's sort of loosely based on that. But we did have somebody from that organization come and talk to us about how they developed it. She came and told us the do's and the don'ts and um, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and then based on that, we developed a proposal for the, um, and this all happened before I was here, so I shouldn't say we, but for the Rhode Island Foundation to launch a pilot called the Pro Bono Collaborative Pilot Project that would have larger, law, uh, larger Rhode Island firms partner with community-based organizations that themselves needed pro bono legal service or had the people that they serve need pro bono legal service um, and law students to provide pro bono legal service on a project basis. So what that looked like initially was, for instance, we had a big firm at the time called Edwards Angel. It's no longer called that. Um, and they partnered with an organization called the College Crusade, and then we had a couple of law students, and together they provided right workshops on a variety of topics to families and their students that were part that were working with this organization. We learned a lot from those early projects, um, and we've we now have four different types of projects, uh, direct individual legal service projects, uh, rights workshop projects, legislative advocacy projects, and then um, nonprofit health projects. So those are sort of the four categories. The first two sometimes go together. So um, we will have mini clinics plus Many clinics meaning a rights workshop plus individual advice and counsel for people that attend the work the rights workshop. Um, so over the course of 12 years, we've had a lot of projects. Some have been wildly successful. Some have um, sort of limped along, and we've had to close them. We've you know learned a lot about what makes a good project and what doesn't. And um, you know to give you an example of a couple of projects that we have. Of a project with Bradley Hospital for Autism and Developmental Disabilities. The, that organization is partnered with a law firm, and for I would say probably over eight years now, um, they've worked to provide rights workshops once or twice a year 
and then they take referrals from families that work with Bradley Hospital who are income eligible and are interested in understanding um, guardianship and its alternatives um, for their their developmentally disabled child as they're about to turn 18. Um, so they have, you know, they're, they've been working together for a long time, and every year or two years we recruit new law students who provide support to the attorneys working on the project. Um, so the law students at the beginning of every school year, they're projects that need new students because the students on those projects have graduated or, you know, they're, they're unable to continue because of their course schedule. We'll, we'll re- do a recruitment sort of cycle and students that are interested in the particular topics that our projects touch on will apply. We'll do a brief training and meeting so that they can meet their partners on the project and then sort of launch or relaunch the project um, with the new students. And at that point, um, students are working under the supervision of the attorneys on the project. So they're not only taking assignments from the attorneys, sitting in on intakes and interviews, maybe going to court, maybe going and getting documents for the attorneys, maybe drafting motions for the attorneys. They're also often developing or updating a PowerPoint presentation that will be um, presented to the families at Bradley Hospital. That's one project. We also have an expungement criminal records project with a homeless meal site in Providence. And uh, once a month on a Friday afternoon after people have had their lunch there, um, we have attorneys from um, a firm and law students who will meet with anybody who's come in and wants to talk about their criminal record. And then they'll, they'll review the criminal record online, which is something we can do here. Um, and sometimes we'll, individuals will bring their BCI with them, evaluate whether it's expungible or sealable. And if it is, then the attorneys will take that on and do the work to get that criminal record sealed or expunged. And again, the law students on the project, they sit there and they work on the interviewing and counseling piece of the project. Um, and then they, you know, so they get experience doing intake, um, and then they work with the attorneys, often drafting a motion, going to court with the attorneys. If that means going to get old records from um, you know, the record center in Pawtucket, they'll do that. Um, but they're all working together. Um, and it's, it's sort of a wonderful thing because nobody has to feel like they're in it alone. Um, and that's, uh, so that, that, those are two examples, and I have many other examples um, you know, the classic, or sort of, not classic, but, um, you know, another typical project is where a brand new nonprofit that's serving low-income people, either they need help becoming a 501c3, or they need help drafting bylaws, or they're buying a property, or um, they can ask for help through the Pro Bono Collaborative, and we will, you know, try to recruit a law firm that experienced in that and can do that for them um, for free. That's sort of our nonprofit project. And then last year, we launched something called Lawyer in the Library, which was not our idea. It's something that's happening in other places around the country. But um, our lawyers who work on all our different projects, um, 
on particular topics came to the public library in Providence uh, once during the semester and held a kind of right workshop, legal education um, presentation for anybody who wanted to come. And it was advertised in the Providence Journal. And um, some in some of those clinics um, or mini clinics, the attorneys also met with people individually. So we had an immigration one, and we had a housing, uh, you know, renters' rights one, an employment and workers' rights one, SSI, SSDI one. Um, it was just sort of, you know, throughout the spring semester. So that sort of also gives you a sense of our agility in being responsive to, um, to what's going on in the community. Yeah, it sounds like you have a really wide variety of projects that you guys work on. Um, I actually read in the 10th year anniversary report that at that time you'd worked on 52 projects, and one of them was actually at my high school, classical high school, so go purple. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but after That's I had left. That's law project? Yes, and that was after I had graduated a few years, actually. Oh. So how does the proposal process work for the projects? So initially, when we started the pro bono collaborative, we didn't have proposals. It was really me going out to meet with community members and talk about what the needs were and how, and I would spend time sort of crafting that need into a project and coming up with, you know, planning the logistics of it and then recruiting a law firm and then law students to to work on it. Once we the PBC caught on, we did develop a proposal process um, and there's actually, an, it's called a project proposal, and it's really like an application. Um, so if people call and say, you know, we have this need and we really like to have pro bono collaborative help us with it, they'll complete this proposal. And really it, it asks them to identify the need, um, how many people have that need if it's not a nonprofit health project. Um, the, the income level of the people that they serve um, we, we go up to about 250, sometimes 300% of poverty, um, depending on, on the specifics. Um, and then we will take that and turn it into a project proposal uh, that we will pitch to law firms, you know, assuming, assuming based on our review of the proposal that it's eligible for our program. Since the PBC has started, how has it changed? Like, what lessons have you learned? What adjustments have you made? Well, before I get to that, I just want to say as part of the proposal process, so after we've identified these projects, um, we routinely send out a menu of pro bono opportunities. One is geared towards attorneys, and then one is geared towards students, and that's sort of a regular thing. Um, that we send out and, you know, attorneys can call us and say, hey, I'm really interested in that project. Um, or then students can do the same. We do it mostly for students at those recruitment phases at the beginning of each semester. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to get people involved. So over the lifespan of the PBC, what like lessons have you learned and have you had to make any adjustments to the program? We have made many adjustments to the program. Um, I would say in terms of lessons that we've learned, 
we've definitely learned that when you connect lawyers and law firms with community organizations, the commitment tends to be more lasting um, because uh, the, the two organizations, law firm and community organization, really do come to rely on each other. And um, we've had a couple of instances where the community-based organization has been invited somebody from the firm in the project onto their board um, or asked them to do something, you know, not related to the pro bono collaborative. Um, so that's been a, a wonderful, I don't know if you call it a lesson, but it's been a wonderful um, realization that that, that that is the lasting relationship that can develop. Um, also, that lawyers do tend to like mentoring law students um, and that they find the team approach more approachable, you know, more appealing. Um, it's not all them. They have support. Um, in terms of a lesson learned, I think I we've discovered that for attorneys that have never done pro bono, uh, it's good to start small, get, you know, let them dip their toes in, and they tend to discover that it's very, very gratifying work to do and really um, powerful, and then they want to do more. Uh, and the reverse doesn't work so well when you, you know, give them a huge responsibility right up front. Um, they really often need to see what it feels like um, uh, to be willing to to get out of the office and do do this kind of work. So baby steps is uh, is something that we've learned. Um, we learned that facilitation is really critical. Um, you know, it's, lawyers are very, very busy, and community-based organization staff are very, very busy and usually in a triage mentality, uh, which we totally understand. So having an organization like the Pro Bono Collaborative with attorney staff like us is helpful in that we can keep people on task, remind people of timelines, um, circle back if law students aren't getting, you know, feedback from attorneys, um, circle back if community-based organizations aren't hearing from an attorney, you know, in, in a timely fashion. Um, I'm not saying that that happens a lot, but it does, it is really helpful to, to, to them, I think, to know that we're CC'd on all the emails and that we're on top of facilitating it so that if there is a hiccup or something gets overlooked or time passed, too much time passes, that, that we will be there to step in and to be the person, you know, that, that provides that reminder. And everybody does understand that, uh, that that's our role or one of our roles. Um, we do have, um, and this is something that we did based on a lesson we learned, we have what was initially called an MOU and then became a roles and responsibilities document that described in, in quite a lot of detail what the law firm's responsibility is, what the individual attorney's responsibility is, what the law student's responsibility is, what the community-based organization liaison's responsibility is, and what our responsibility is. Um, and we ask anybody who's beginning a project to review that document carefully so they understand, you know, what's involved uh, and how the the pro bono collaborative works before they actually start in on the on a project, um, and that's been very helpful. Um, you know, I haven't had to refer people back to that document very often, 
Um, but I think it is good for just people to have that understanding. Um, and it's been helpful for us with our facilitation. Um, another lesson we've learned is that often community-based organizations staff and actually the people they serve really don't know what problems they're facing in in their lives or in their organization that lend themselves to legal assistance. And so our role as lawyers sometimes is to translate problems that people are having um, or organizations are having into legal issues that can be addressed through the pro bono collaborative. Um, and it's interesting, I just, the new legal services corporation report um, that just came out, the justice gap measuring the unmet civil legal needs of low-income Americans, did um, did acknowledge that that's a problem, you know, that the, the justice gap as we have historically been measuring it, it really was based on a people's ability to understand what problems they're having in their lives are legal problems. And in fact, there's much, much more than that. That's just the tip of the iceberg because when people are faced with issues with housing, conditions in their housing, when they're faced with natural disaster, all sorts of things, they don't necessarily think this is something a lawyer might be able to help me with. It often takes them time to get to that place if they get there at all. And that's particularly true when it's not a litigation issue. Family law, I think most people understand that that's a legal issue um, because there's usually court documents involved, but, um, you know, other things, not so much. Yeah, I recently also read that LSE report, and as you were talking about it, that statistic had come to mind, and I even wrote a blog about it. Um, on the oh, wow. PBI's website if people want to learn more about it. Um, so what is on the horizon for the program? What's next? I think a few things. We, we obviously are always trying, continuing to nurture the pro bono culture in a changing legal landscape here and everywhere, of course. I don't think we're um, unique in, in having a changing legal landscape um, we have been um, looking to engage in-house counsel attorneys more, and we've been getting a very receptive, or, you know, they've been very receptive to that, so that's exciting. And then unbundling, as you know, or limited scope representation um, has always been an important dimension of pro bono legal service, and um, it hadn't really caught on here in Rhode Island, even though we had some rules for it, it wasn't being used in part because there wasn't sufficient guidance from the court and in the forms and so forth. But a recent decision of the Rhode Island Supreme Court in the Pachette case has really opened the door for more unbundling in the state. And it is our hope that that decision and the forms and change, rule changes that came along with it will result in greater engagement in pro bono here in Rhode Island. Um, it is a provisional order. It's a one-year order that they'll revisit in a year, but our hope is that, um, you know, that that means that they'll just refine it based on what they learn over the course of this year. Uh, but that's huge, and we've been trying for a long time to uh, encourage limited scope representation here. Uh, so. 
I, that, that I think is one of the big things on our horizon right now is taking, taking that change and, and, and encouraging lawyers to use the forms and do more family law on a limited scope basis. And, and I think attorneys have been reluctant here to do limited scope for fear that they wouldn't be able to get out of the case. Um, and now we've, the Supreme Court has paved the way for attorneys to get out of cases when they finish the limited scope. And that should really reassure attorneys that they won't be biting off more than they can chew when they take on a particular piece of the case. That's amazing. So speaking of increased engagement, I'm going to turn from the perspective of a law student for a little bit. So I read this article that you were a part of, Don't Do It Alone, a community-based collaborative approach to pro bono. And in it, I read this really interesting sentence that RW Law has an unusual high percentage of law students who pursue public interest law after graduation. So why do you think that is, that it is so unusually high? I think that is because the law school has always really emphasized public service and the school has put resources into um, their public service programming increasingly over the years. And in 1997, founded uh, the Feinstein Center. At the time, it was the Feinstein Center for Public Service. Um, it's been through some reorganization, um, and we're now the Feinstein Center for Pro Bono and Experiential Education. And so we are kind of an umbrella organization that um, includes being the public interest hub of the law school, um, administering our 50-hour pro bono graduation requirement, which I think is a big part of, of what, what uh, leads to law students getting interested in public interest you know, identifying and developing opportunities for law students to do public service and to do pro bono. Obviously, the willingness of the law school to create and house this pro bono collaborative and to hire me. And then just the array of experiential opportunities that we have that are public interest focused. I mean, we have some that are are not public interest focused specifically. We have a corporate counsel externship program. And we also have a small business startup clinic, but then we also have our immigration clinic and our criminal defense clinic and our public interest externship program and environmental program. And um, so, you know, it's just been this growing array of opportunities and I think a real um, commitment on the part of the law school um, administration to, um, to make this a priority and to give back to the community of Rhode Island we are the only law school in Rhode Island, and so that puts us in a unique position in terms of being able to provide help. Does that answer your question? Yes, it's a very encouraging environment for students, it sounds like. So you had mentioned the mandatory pro bono requirement of 50 hours, which is called the pro bono ELR, which is experiential learning requirement. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this requirement and making pro bono mandatory for students? Well, I'm a true believer. I think that because of Rule 6.1, pro bono is should be treated as a professional responsibility of the lawyer, and I think it's a privilege to have a law degree, and that we should every lawyer should should contribute um, their time to helping people in the community. 
uh, with your unmet legal needs. We have a devastating uh, justice gap. Uh, and so not only is there a tremendous need for it, but I think that the privilege of having a law degree comes with uh, responsibility. Uh, and I think the law school, this law school and other law schools that have a mandatory requirement are really um, seeking to instill in law students uh, an ethic, that ethic of providing pro bono and seeing it as a, uh, as a responsibility. And I think you can't do that. You can't instill that unless you actually are insisting that your law students get out there and provide the service and see what it feels like um, and see also what it looks like when lawyers that they're being supervised by are doing pro bono service, uh, which is part of, is one of the goals of the pro bono collaborative is, you know, because law students are working alongside practicing lawyers doing pro bono, they're actually seeing attorneys do it and they're um, seeing how it can fit into an attorney's lifestyle and practice. Um, but so... Um, we had a 20-hour requirement, and then we upped it to a 50-hour requirement. Uh, and, you know, people don't seem to have trouble fulfilling it. And it does, um, in many, many cases, it has been the thing that has um, made a, a graduate decide to make pro bono a, a dimension of their practice or made a law student who came in thinking they wanted to do uh, corporate law decide to do public interest law, um, but you know I just think it's uh, it, the goal is not is not that it isn't to change them from corporate you know potentially corporate lawyers into public interest lawyers, um, but understanding that there is that need out there and that they do have a role and responsibility in addressing it is the goal, and I think that the requirement achieves it. So. For our next question is, how has pro bono at law schools changed since you were a student? Like, what are the students passionate about? Well, pro bono has changed in the obvious way that we didn't have pro bono requirements when I was in law school, and I don't remember being encouraged to do pro bono as a law student. You know, my exposure was more through um, the clinics uh, in law school. But I think um, law students, are very interested in public service, but, but it's more now than ever, um, but they don't necessarily understand the difference between public service and pro bono. Um, and so that's something that we try to help them understand. Our law students really love our ACI project, and I can understand why. I sometimes think every law student should have the opportunity to go inside a prison uh, because it is, you know, the basic part of our criminal justice system. But not only do they go in, but they do it in a way that is very feels very safe for them. They get to have direct client contact. They get to practice their intake and interviewing and counseling skills. Um, they get to work closely with supervising attorneys and um, they they see the results. Um, so that's really, um, that's been a very popular project. Our VITA program, Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, is very popular with our students. Um, it's a nice 
bridge between kind of corporate tax interests that students have and providing pro bono legal service. Um, and they love it. They do a long online training over the winter break usually, and then they sign up to um, attend clinics where they help people fill out their income taxes and get earned income tax credits. Um, and they've been responsible for putting thousands and thousands of dollars back in the pockets of low-income Rhode Islanders. Uh, so again, they're getting direct client contact, they're seeing the results of their work, um, and they're also developing a skill through the project. Um, so those are really popular um, projects. Our, Maca our Macaulay, our expungement project is also a popular project where, I think I described it earlier, the students are, again, out, out at a lunch site for homeless people, working, you know, in direct contact with individuals and um, seeing the results and developing a skill. Uh, so I would say those are, are three of our tops. But all, almost all of them, we rarely have trouble getting students um, onto projects. I think, you know, there's a lot of it. There's, it's very appealing for students to be able to work alongside practicing attorneys, private attorneys, and um, and to be part of a team. It definitely goes back to like mentoring real life experience point you had made earlier. So um, I was mm -hmm. also interested in learning about the alternative spring break, which you had mentioned previously in this episode, mm -hmm. um, where the students have the option to go on this alternative spring break and offer legal services. So what kind of projects are offered? Our alternative spring break started after Katrina and has just grown um, tremendously since then. We now have uh, usually over 60 students involved and they go on any one of, I think it's usually about 16 different projects slash placements. Um, Many of them are local and um, involve um, spending a week at, for instance, the Rhode Island Center for Justice um, or the Conservation Law Foundation on particular projects that those organizations have identified. Um, but then we also have students who um, have gone out to Colorado to work with public defender offices um, to Pittsburgh to work on with a federal defender there. Um, a couple, three years ago, we had a group go down to uh, San Antonio, Texas and work at the Dilly Detention Center with um, mothers and children uh, who were in the detention center and, um, you know, helping them figure out what their options were and um, complete forms and so forth. Um, the, the, the project was... Uh, actually through RAISIS, um, which is an organization in San Antonio that does this work. Um, but we had the director of our immigration clinic go down with the students. Um, and every day they drove out to the detention center um, to, do, to do the interviewing and, and the work. Um, so that's sort of one way that we've tried to be responsive to issues that as they've come up. Um, We've had people go to the AIDS project in Philly. Lots of students have gone to public defender and um, civil legal services placements in New York, the Bronx Defenders, and Brooklyn. Um, I think, well, 
well, definitely the Bronx Defenders um, and several other organizations in New York. And they go and they, uh, for the most part, when it's combined with the reflective aspect, um, most of the students are able to complete their 50-hour uh, pro bono experiential learning requirements. Wow, that's amazing. And those are definitely different variety of opportunities that can help a ton of people. Our final question is, who is your pro bono access to justice role model and why? Well, to be fair, I have to say I have two, both of my parents, my mother, who passed away when, when I was 18. My mother devoted her career as a children's librarian to children in the lowest income communities around Boston. So I think that she became a role model for helping in low income communities and she has to get credit for that. And then my father, because he devoted his career to legal education and in doing so, he always emphasized the academy's role in and responsibility to justice, to public service, and to increasing access to justice. So those are my role models. That is a great answer and incredibly touching. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for being a guest today, and we really enjoyed it. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to hearing the other podcasts as they come out. Thank you so much to Eliza for joining us today. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave a review. We would appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about PBI, go to probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send our comments feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.